0: Thessalonians 1, to 1-10 and you can find that on your Bibles on page 1237 or you can follow with the screen. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath.
1: Well, friends, there is a outline for the talk tonight. You might find that helpful. If you didn't get one at the door, you can grab that. There's also a full transcript of the talk. That might be helpful for some of you. Now, we'll be working through 1 Thessalonians uh, starting today. Next week, we will take a break and uh, have an evangelistic talk. So, uh, Matt, our student minister, will be speaking that, that week, next week, and then we'll continue with 1 Thessalonians. It will be worth, uh, as we uh, heard last week, before any series, to just read ahead. A, a Familiarise yourself with the book, read ahead, and then hopefully that will help you as you come and hear it again and explained. But we come to this letter. It's a wonderful letter. I'm excited about this um, letter and what God might and will teach us. And so let's let's pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us today through your written word uh, for us. Uh, we know that these words are true. They have truth that is uh, timeless. And we pray, Lord, that we might see how we as a church should respond. How we should, as a church, imitate Christ, and how we, as a church, should go forth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, any guesses? How many churches there are in Australia? Any guesses? Random guess? It's going to be a guess. Churches. Number of churches. Anything, independent church or churches? Any guesses? 22,000. Too high. <laughs> 5,000, too low. 10,000, closer. It, yep, closer still, but not close enough. 13,000 churches in Australia. Yeah, that's a lot of churches. Do you know how many schools there are in this country? There are lots of schools, but not as many as churches. There are only 9,500 schools. That's interesting, isn't it? More churches than there are at school. Uh, then there are schools and can pretty much say 13,000 churches that each of these 13,000 churches will all have their own different flavors of doing church different flavors of doing ministry different flavors of how they group their people what they do during the week what they do on Sundays and I'm sure you go to different churches there'll be differences in length of singing we sing two at the beginning some might sing a lot more or some don't sing at all Uh, different lengths in sermons our sermon length is whatever i get down that week but other churches might go longer might go shorter some churches they don't even have a sermon and so there are all sorts of different flavors of churches people do church in different ways and in various ways but given that there are so many different churches just in our country alone how do we know that our church this presbyterian church in surah hills that we're on the right track how do we know that we're doing church right how do we know that what we believe is true how do we know that we are on the right track but you know in our church this might be news for some of you our church part of our denomination the presbyterian denomination we're governed by what you call presbyters which means elders and at different levels of governance are different groups of elders. And so this is good for you to know, on the local church level, so here the group of elders together, uh, they call it the session. In our region, we're part of Melbourne East. That region, uh, that's the presbytery. Okay, that's the level of government there. And then on the state level, you've got the assembly. And then on the national level, you've got the national assembly. Now, every five years... The local church, every local church in the state is meant to receive a visit from the presbytery, the regional authority, to see that we're, whether we're on track or not. Okay, So every five years that's meant to happen, to see whether we're on track. They go around to churches, their allocated church, they go around, they sit in their services, they sit in on some meetings, they meet with the members, they ask questions, they meet with the elders, and they want to assess, they want to review, they want to check. Is this church on track? Is it doing what it's meant to do? And so they would encourage if it's going well, and if it's not going well, they can correct, they can rebuke, they can do those sorts of things to, to just check whether they were on track. Now, since I've started about four and a half years ago, we have yet to receive a visit which means really anything has happened over those last four and a half years. You guys, what have you been learning? Well, hopefully it's been good. So no one checking over over our shoulders just yet, which means that it might happen soon. But how do we know whether we are on track or not as a church? How do we make sure? How can we ensure that that will always be the case? Well, today in the letter we'll be looking at, Paul assesses this uh, this church in Thessalonica. And we see in his assessment what his concern was, what his encouragement was to them and whether they were on track. And reading this letter, this first part of this letter, it should also cause us as a church to deeply reflect on us, as a church, on how we are going. Now, it's worth understanding as we start any new book, understanding a bit of the historical context, the historical context of this church Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia, which is the northern part of modern-day Greece. Okay, so picture Greece in the northern part. Today, it's the second biggest Greek city. Um, today, in fact, um, the Greek, big Greek city, Thessaloniki, sits on top of the ancient city. So, the ancient city was destroyed and now the modern city sits on top of that and only part of the city has been excavated. And so, in our first reading in Acts, we saw that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, his missionary partners, they were passing through and they went through Thessalonica. And what we saw there was that over three weeks on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and he spoke and explained the scriptures to the Jewish community in that city. So, only three weeks. He went there on the Saturday, opened the scriptures, explained to them, this is Jesus, the one you've been waiting for. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And so he did that over three weeks and it was fruitful work. That's what we read in Acts. Jews, Greeks and many prominent women, we read, became Christians. And so over those three weeks, Paul planted the church along with his missionary friends. That church was planted in a very short time. But then just as soon as Paul and his team planted that sh- uh, church, the Jews of the city were jealous. They caused a riot in the city and so just as quickly as he planted it, he had to take off with his missionary friends and so they were sent off to the neighbouring city of Berea. Okay, that's the historical context. Planted a church only over three weeks and then because of fear and safety they left to the neighbouring city. Now just imagine you're in Paul's you're the, the apostle to the Gentiles. You're the apostle who goes around planting churches. And this church is new. They're just baby Christians. They're just infants. Now imagine what Paul will be feeling, leaving them just so, uh, only after three weeks. He'll be so concerned, so worried, so concerned for how they're going in their faith. He's left them in their infancy. They're just baby Christians. And so what we see here is that Paul expresses what he feels and what his report he received was. And of course, they too were anxious. They're thinking, we're new Christians here. You've only been with us a short time and you're leaving us already. But then in his letter, what we see, perhaps written only a few months after he left this church, perhaps Paul's very first letter in the New Testament, he writes about how they are tracking as a church. And what we find here is incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. And so despite having Paul for only a few weeks, despite only being very young in the faith, just infants in the faith, what we find here is that the the Christians in Thessalonica they have been growing. They were infants when Paul left them, but they've been growing rather than despairing. They've been maturing rather than abandoning the faith that they've heard and believed. They've been flourishing rather than weakening in their faith and so what paul says right from the outset is that they're genuine christians even though he left them as infants they're they are genuine christians they are for real infants but growing now what was it that convinced paul that they were going well well let's consider his prayer it's a wonderful prayer in this prayer, Paul first and foremost recognizes that they're tracking well as Christians. They're growing as Christians all because of God. It is God's work and so he thanks God for them. You see, they're growing, they're maturing, they're, they're stabilizing as Christians. He's, he doesn't go to them and say, you're you, you awesome people, you infants, you're growing up, You're very good of you. No, he thanks God for them and what God's doing in them. So look at verse 2. Here he says, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. And there we see the concern of a parent for his children. You see, that's always the right response when we see Christians growing in the faith, when we see Christians maturing, when we see people coming to faith. We don't, in a sense, thank you. We thank God for you. And here we see that Paul saw evidence of their growth. Paul was convinced that they're genuine Christians and he notices three things in them: Traditional Pauline evidence for, for genuine Christianity of faith, love and hope. You see, Paul notices that they have faith in God, that you have to have faith in God. They trusted in God's promises. God says, I will save you through my son and they believed that, they trusted that and they responded in hard faithful service. And then Paul goes on to talk, talk about them, them having love for one another, just as they've been loved, just as they've experienced love of Christ for them. They're imitating that love and they're caring for one another. And so, even though you're a slave, I'm going to love you anyway. Even though you're a Gentile, I'm going to love you anyway. The, the Christians in that city brought people together. They were loved. And thirdly, he saw that they had hope in the new creation, They weren't despairing even though they were suffering. They weren't sad and mopey. But like we see here, they had the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. That's the mark of genuine Christianity, mark of genuine Christians, faith, love and hope. And so that's what we see. Verse 3, have a look. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, their life was reorientated, drawn now towards God in faith, drawn out towards each other in love and drawn towards the future, towards the new creation in hope. Their whole being, their whole life was changed around by the gospel. And so it's right that John Stott, the late theologian and pastor, he said this, every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover and a hoper. And it makes so much sense. If you're just a lover and a hoper, what is it your faith is in? What is it you're believing in? It doesn't make sense. If you're just a believer and a lover, well, what are you living for? What will sustain you until the future? You see, these three are the marks of genuine Christians. Now, that's important to remember and it's important to recognise what marks out genuine Christians? Faith, love and hope. Now when I went to Turkey a few yeah, these illustrations will keep on coming over the next few years. When I went to Turkey a few weeks ago, in fact over about two months ago now, in the markets we visited, they they all many of them sold fake stuff, just lots of fake stuff, fake branded stuff, fake watches, handbags, wallets clothing all fake stuff but they made a distinction in these markets they made a distinction between the fake fake stuff and the fake genuine stuff heard of that term before the fake fake stuff are really fake they're cheap and nasty and they won't last but then they try to make a distinction this is genuine fake stuff not fake fake but genuine fake and what they mean by that is it, there's a bit more care in the making of it, and so they would real use real leather in the handbags or wallets, and they would show you this is genuine fake, so they get a lighter, take out the handbag, and they will light the fire and put the fire on the handbag. A fake one would melt because it's made out of plastic, a real one it will just stay as it is and so I, I end up buying something I bought a wallet twenty bucks, and I checked up what the the genuine genuine one is. 440 bucks Well, I can tell that it's fake I knew it was fake or genuine fake I wasn't fooled the logo's a bit lopsided and it'll probably start falling apart in a few months but they're the marks of fake stuff, I, I, I know that it is but it didn't really matter that fake stuff but when it comes to our faith where we really stand before God there are marks that show whether you're for real whether you're genuine, genuine and what Paul's telling us here is that there must be the marks of faith, faith in God through his son. There must be the mark of love, love for one another. If you're a hateful person, a nasty person, then you don't have that sign. And you must also live in hope, hope of the return of Jesus. And so it's worth asking yourself that, isn't it? Are you a fake, fake, genuine, fake, or genuine, genuine? Are you for real? What is it that makes you a Christian? Coming to church does not make anyone a Christian, though you should. Reading the Bible does not make anyone a Christian, though you should. Praying daily does not make anyone a Christian, though you should. You see, the signs of faith, love and hope, that's what we're looking for. And so here, John Calvin, he once said that, you can't exaggerate this, that these three marks, these three signs are a brief definition of true Christianity. And so here the Apostle Paul, he left them as infants. He's concerned, he's worried, and they were perhaps concerned as well. But he's received report and he's super pleased. They are for real, they're genuine Christians. They've been growing, they've shown signs of faith, love and hope and it is good. But of course Paul's concern here was not just that they were genuine Christians. Don't just get over the line and be saved. Be a difference, make a difference to your life be effective, be useful and be fruitful as Christians. You see, being a Christian is great to be saved, but it doesn't end there. You need to be a Christian, be saved, but then be fruitful, be useful to the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul now recounts. He's heard of reports of this young church and it's been very good, very encouraging. It's the way the church is meant to be. It's meant to be fruitful. And that's what he noticed The gospel came to them. They received it, but it didn't stop there. It sounded out from them. The gospel went forth from them. And so let's consider this. We'll work through the rest of the passage. Firstly, the gospel came to them. But Paul here also describes how it came. And this is worth understanding here. You see, when we share the gospel, when we share to our friends what the gospel is that jesus died two thousand years ago that he came alive again but his death was for us and his resurrection was to give us the hope of eternal life that his death has satisfied the anger and wrath of god he died in our place when we share the simple message of the gospel very often it appears so weak so useless so fruitless so feeble it's just what i'm saying they're just mere words But you see, you need to hear this. It's perhaps the most powerful thing you'll ever do in your life, that is to proclaim the gospel. You see, nothing we can do comes close to that power of proclaiming the gospel. You see, knowing to, being able to vote when you turn 18. In fact, if you look through human history, many wars are fought so that citizens can vote the government into power. It's a powerful thing to be able to vote the next government into power. But you see, that, that ability to vote has nothing on this. Proclaiming the gospel can save lives. Leading a major corporation is powerful. You have many people working for you, listening to you, obeying you, but that power's got nothing on this. Proclaiming the gospel can save lives, being even the prime minister of this country. Powerful. You run the nation. Powerful. you've got the cabinet you've got these ministers working for you but that power's got nothing on this because proclaiming the gospel saves lives we need to remember that we need to recognize that and so even though when i try to share the gospel and i stutter and i stumble in my arguments as i explain two ways to live that is powerful stuff to be able to proclaim the word of god because what paul goes on to tell us is that when the word of god is proclaimed the Spirit of God is also working. You need to remember that. When the Word of God is proclaimed, the Spirit of God is active with the Word. Very important to, work, uh, to remember, to understand. The Word of God works alongside the Spirit of God. You see, the Word of God is not on this side to be read, to be taught, and the Spirit of God is over this side doing his own thing. That's the wrong way to think about it. They work together. The Spirit of God applies the Word of God to us. And so John Stott again, he, he once said this, the Word of God is the Spirit's sword. The Spirit without the Word is weaponless. The Word without the Spirit is powerless. And so that's an important way to think about how does the Spirit work in this world? Was well, with the Word of God. And so when the Spirit works with God's Word, that is powerful. That is why anyone can be saved. It's not because... I'm great with my arguments and convincing and because my two ways to live explanation is done well, it's because the spirit of God is working. And that's why in one sense, the most powerful thing you ever be able to do in your life is to proclaim the gospel. And so that's why here Paul can say with confidence that these people are amongst God's loved ones. They're amongst God's chosen ones because the gospel came to them And how did it come? It came with power. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. Paul goes on to say, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, and with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. That's how the gospel came to them, with power. Not mere words, but with power. And then what did they do? How did they show fruit as Christians? Well, they received it. And so just as Paul was persecuted for proclaiming the gospel, they were persecuted for receiving the gospel. But they received it anyway, we're told. They received it anyway. In fact, more than that, they imitated Paul. Now, that imitation idea, they imitated Paul's zeal. They imitated Paul's love for Christ they imitated paul's faith his character his godliness and in doing so they were Im- imitating the lord himself and so we see that next two verses six six and seven you became imitators of us and of the lord in spite of severe suffering you welcomed the message with the joy given by the holy spirit and so you became a model to order believers in macedonia and achaia and there you see they were fruitful christians Not just real Christians, but also fruitful. The gospel did not come to save them and stay there. It was effective in them. It made a difference. Now, remember here that these were new baby infant Christians, but yet they were able to model what Christian living is meant to look like. Imagine that, a child, a baby, an infant, showing you how to live life. That's what we're seeing here with them as Christians. And if you think about that, that's encouraging. When those of you here who are recent converts, you've come to Christianity very recently, but your life was changed so profoundly that your life now already is on display as a model of what Christian living should look like, that is hugely encouraging if you are new to the faith. That is the fruit of the gospel. But of course, at the same time, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and then you see these younger Christians coming to faith, but yet in one sense they're surpassing you in how they're modelling Christian faith and living. That should be, in a sense, an indictment, isn't it? We should be growing, always growing. But here that wasn't the case for the Thessalonians. They received the gospel despite the suffering. And then finally what happened? Where well, the gospel did not stay with them. It sounded forth from them. It went out. Like a great trumpet call or the rolling thunder, it reverberated through the hills and mountains and valleys of Greece. It went out. It is hard to imagine a baby church having such a massive impact. It didn't go out. It didn't uh, just go out to the neighbouring cities. It went out far and wide. And so verses 8 to 10, look. The Lord's message ran, rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And what was it about their faith that was being made known? Well, verse 9, 9 and 10. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so what they're showing us is that their conversion was genuine. They've shown the fruits of faith, love and hope. And here we see, one writer puts it, they've, they've made a decisive break with idols. But they've made an active service of God. That is their life now and now they wait patiently for Christ. A major turnaround, turning away from idols and turning to God in service. Now when we read that, it sounds Deep theological that that is what must happen for any Christian, but it is significant for that community to have done that. You see, it may be a little bit difficult for us to grasp how significant it is for anyone to turn away from idols in that world to God. from my study tour again every every site we visited, there would be some massive temple to some Greek god or imperial worship. They were the biggest, strongest, tallest building in the city they're the biggest structure in the city imposing impressive that was the place of wealth that was the place you meet that was the place of honor and glory and in some cities they will have quite a few temples and so the christians those who did become christians they're turning their backs on that that was the place of glory that was the place of wealth that was the place of recognition they're turning away from all those big imposing structures and they're meeting in a little home as Christians to love God, to love each other. You know, it was intimidating for anyone to become a Christian, but they did. They did that, and that was a fruit of their genuine conversion. Their faith was bearing fruit, and now their reputation was going out, it was spreading. It was amazing. And so we see in this first part of this letter. What an encouraging letter to have received for this little young church, new to the faith, only being started a few months ago since Paul wrote this letter. Very young, but doing so well, so encouraging. But then, of course, when we read such a letter to such a young church, it should, of course, cause us to deeply reflect on how we are going in this church, in this place, in this local gathering of Christians. You see, we're no longer a young church. Do you know how long we've been around this church? Next year, it will be 130 years. We're no longer young. But I wonder whether our modelling of the gospel, our modelling of Christian living, our imitation of Christ is like the Thessalonians. Are we on the right track? Are the things that concern us, the things that really should concern us, if the presbytery had their visit to us will we pass their tests? If Paul was to come and visit us if Paul was to sit in on our meetings on our services in our Sunday school in our youth group at our session our board meetings at home if Paul was to see all would he write this same letter to us? What do you think? Well we need to assess ourselves don't we? Wonderful, encouraging letter to the church in Thessalonica. But what about us? We need to assess because it stops us from being complacent. It stops us from just going with the flow. Whatever the churches are doing, we'll do too. It stops us from going with the flow, but it keeps us busy doing what is right and good. And so what do you think? How are we going as an old church? Well, I hope this passage does challenge us You see, just like them, we want to be genuine Christians but also fruitful Christians, not just saved Christians but Christians making a difference in how we live, in what we say. We want to be fruitful Christians. And so if we think about the marks of being a Christian, we want to be working hard, extremely hard because we believe that Jesus died for us. We believe that. And if, we, if you can believe that Jesus can look into your heart, see the filth of your sin and still die for you, that has to change you. That has to change you so that you work hard for him, for his sake, for the benefit of his church, for the benefit of his kingdom. And so if you think about that, how can we who have this faith be complacent as Christians? just go with the flow whatever the world tells us we'll go with them whatever anyone tells us we'll go with them we cannot be complacent if this is true if we believe this we can't be lazy as christians if we believe this if this is true we can't see church as just like a social club dare to serve my purposes i'll buy in membership if it does good for me this doesn't work that way if we truly believe we work hard we work really hard in response and of course we want to be laboring in love for all those around us we want to love those we wouldn't love previously those who are different from us we want to love because we've been loved and we want to imitate the love of christ for us And so how do we show love think about how that works practically the way i reckon our society our culture can show love in a real way in a genuine way in a easy way It's really just spending time together, showing hospitality to one another. Wonderful way for us to show love, making no distinction between who we invite. We love everyone. We share, we give, we love and we work hard. You see, the word here is to labour. To labour is not meant to be easy, but we labour in love because we've been loved much. And then, of course, we want to be enduring in hope. This life is not all there is. We live with hope, not with despair. At the men's convention recently, one of the speakers said this and it was quite refreshing to hear. We'll live through life. It'll, there'll be ups and downs. There'll be stresses and pains and joys and happiness and all that. But, but he put it this way, two minutes in heaven, two minutes in heaven will make all your happiness and joy and contentment on earth look childish so we live in hope that puts our life in perspective we live in hope what a wonderful perspective we have and so that was a young church we are now an old church and so we need to do better we need to be growing genuine christians but fruitful christians christians where the gospel makes a difference in all aspects of our lives in every room of our lives Every day of our lives. It doesn't just call for ten percent of us the gospel. It doesn't just call ten percent of our effort and time to give to the Lord. It doesn't call for twenty percent of our lives. The gospel doesn't even call for ninety nine percent of our lives. The gospel calls for one hundred percent of our all for him. I mean you think about the reverse. Did Jesus only shed ten percent of his blood? And then it stopped. Did he shed 40%? Did he shed 99%? No, he shared 100% for us that we might have life so that we can have faith in God, so that we might live in love, so that we might hope of the new creation. And so that is our challenge. That is our challenge. We are an old church. That is our challenge. Be fruitful. And finally, of course, reflecting on Paul's prayer. How are we really tracking What would Paul really say? What would Paul really pray for us? Well, perhaps just quietly, I would think Paul would also be thanking God for us. Not because we're great, not because we're so awesome, not because of your ministers at all, but because of God. That's what he would do. He would thank God for us because in my time here, the gospel is central. There is vast amounts of evidence of faith, love, and hope. I see it. And I hope you see it too. And so that's encouraging, isn't it? I suspect that will be the same prayer that He will pray for us. Now, I've been at this church for four and a half years. And quite often, quite often, even today, I get the question so, what do you think will happen next, John? You've been here, you're an assistant minister. When will you take the reins of being senior minister somewhere else? What church are you thinking about next? What what next for you and your family? You know what I answer. What my answer is? My answer is, just not thinking about it. I don't really care. I'm not thinking about what church I'm going to next. I'm not seeing this as a stepping stone to somewhere else because I see in this church what Paul prayed for the church. There is love, faith and hope clearly seen as we relate, as we meet, and what a joy that is to be here. Not thinking about anything else. To be here where God is working, where the gospel is growing. But of course there is more to be done. There's always more to be done. But at least, I think, in God's kindness, by God's mercy, we are a church that is on track. The gospel is at our heart. We are a gospel-centred church, and so we praise God for that. And so let's do that right now. gracious